Welcome everyone to a deck hockey focused special presentation, the 50 year history of organized street deck and ball hockey. In part three, we explore the 1990s blood sport. Scott, what are the listeners in for in this episode? In this episode, we're going to go through the 90s, which was certainly a, a very colorful time, a time uh, of cha great change in our sport. We've got a lot of great speakers to take us through this era from, you know, Mark, bringing back Mark Madden from the Pittsburgh area, Chris Hauser from the Leominster area. Um, and then we're joined by some some newcomers to the podcast in the the always uh, colorful and entertaining Jay Machen from the Long Island area, um, Anthony Sillo and Mark Goody, who are also from there. Steve Kendall joining us from the Lemonster area and Dave Purcell from the greater Boston area. They're going to take us through a time period and a generation that cared deeply for our sport, loved our sport, um, was filled with a lot of talent um, and talented uh, super teams. And then uh, you'll see a generation that was willing to win at all costs, uh, even if sometimes that meant crossing the line. At the end of the 1980s, deck hockey was booming, but the drive to win would change the sport in the 90s. Mark Madden and the rest of the panel paints us a picture of what the sport was like during this controversial decade. Well, the 90s were kind of a strange era. There's no doubting the quality of the players, the quality of the teams either. Uh, but uh, deck hockey on Long Island kind of uh, had a death rattle in the 90s. Uh, the good players who were still around uh, still participated. Jay obviously had his really good team that won a lot of tournaments. But there weren't many young players coming up from the aisle. A lot of the teams that went for years kind of disappeared. And a lot of teams combined kind of merged rosters and very big players and formed like, you know, one or two teams where six or seven used to stand. So for that reason, the number of teams participating in the 90s have shrunk and quite dramatically at some point. I'm not sure when the internationals disappeared for good, but it might have been during the 90s. So when you had a few new areas spring up, like uh, – Pittsburgh started to get a lot more tournament teams in the 90s. A, a lot of areas receded and even disappeared, and it caused for the tournaments to be downsized. Now, that said, the quality of play during the tournaments was beyond reproach. Uh, it might have been the best era for consistent play from beginning to end in a typical tournament, especially at Lemonster, because when the teams all combined, there weren't many bad teams left. There weren't many bad games. It was just one good game after another at the big tournament. So it, it was kind of an up and down era. It was up in terms of quality. It was down in terms of numbers. Uh, and, and I think it steered a little bit better in terms of numbers as we got out of the 90s. But I remember when Nationals used to be like 32, 36 teams. Nationals in the 90s was usually 16 teams if we were lucky. And like I said, internationals uh, disappeared altogether, I think during the 90s, if not then, then not longer the next decade. But uh, the games themselves, the tournaments themselves, they were great. It's just, uh, I don't want to say the format changed, but the amount of teams changed the format. Just to piggyback, Mark, to give you the, the clarification of the international. So 1996 was the last time it was held on uh, Memorial Day weekend, which was the best of the way to do it, if everyone remembers the old format. And then, because the Canadian dollar took such a beating right around that time the, the four to six Canadian participants participants were unable to uh to, to come you know a couple maybe did come but weren't able to come you know the heyday of early 90s when Patrick Warren those guys brought teams and then Chris attempted to keep it going he moved it to June 
97 and 98, which both of those tournaments went off, but 98 was the last one. And uh, as much as anything, uh, the Canadian dollar and the inability, uh, you know, for them to come over for half half the dollar was part of it. And uh, and also, uh, as far as Long Long Island goes, we went into that roller hockey. Roller hockey started to become big, and our youth hockey disappeared completely. And we condensed in that. In late in '97, we made all the teams into one. And to Mark's point, before that, there was everyone, you know, from the the, the, the King Hawks to, the, you know, Quorum and the Dreamers, and those were the top three. And there were many other teams, you know, the Top Cats, and I could name a few more. But but that that his, his of course, what he's saying is exactly right. Uh, mid uh, Midwest Regional was in Pittsburgh at Penn Hills. Mid Atlantic Regional was in uh, Western Berks. Uh, those were what we consider the five majors. And Mark, you would know this exactly. When did you jump in with that, with the Connecticut's and the Phillies? Was that l- mid late? Uh, that was in the nineties when we had that NDA thing. When when yeah. Milak and Chris sort of split, it was like Paul Dolan from Quorum, right. uh, who headed up the NDA. Yeah, I think it was the nineties. Uh, you, you still had the Long Island Regional though. Uh, yeah. But some of the tournaments uh, kind of shrunk, uh, not just the Lemonster. Like I said, there were just fewer teams. And, you know, the Penn Hills one revived a little. We were able to get some teams out there late in the 90s, you know, uh, a little bit. That was a pretty, you know, the Midwest Regional was one. And then, obviously, uh, Tournament of Champions, correct? Yeah, they had two in Reading. But, uh, but but the rink itself at Reading started to go to hell because the surface was in really bad shape. And they couldn't get in masters. And eventually, it just fell apart, uh, which is a shame because Reading, PA – was centrally located for all of the deck hockey hotbeds. I mean, a bit closer to, like, say, Philadelphia than, than to Lemonster, but anybody could get there easily to play. And when that rink uh, disappeared, that was a big loss to deck hockey. Hey, hey Jay, just yeah. uh, like in the beginning 90s, I thought there was actually, especially from probably – I started in 91 – so probably like 95, I thought that era had like the most teams in tournaments. I don't know what the 80s did, but I remember there was 30 teams in a tournament at that point. Like yeah, it was the, 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 the internationals were still doing okay, 91, 92, 93. Uh, Stevie, what came in like 92, 93? Yeah, it was like 92 or 93. The team from Japan came in 93. Uh, you know – I think it was right around there. It was when the, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said it was a Canadian dollar. That killed the internationals. I mean, because you were getting at least six teams from between Ontario and Quebec to come down, and, and then you were down to maybe one from Niagara Falls, and that was it if you were lucky. Uh, I remember that California team, too. Yeah, the California team was coming pretty regularly. Yeah. But but interesting about that international, he did it, you know, the Friday, Saturday, I mean, I'm sorry, the Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and he did 20. But, you know, Mark said it, it was 32 at Nationals, and, you know, it was a different format. You know, the old format was two games guaranteed at Nationals, four games guaranteed at Internationals, and it kind of played into each other three weeks apart. It was like it was like the horse race almost, you know, you did the – the Kentucky Derby, then the Belmont, but that middle middle of the decade was the was the uh, end right. of the Canadian participation for quite some time. And, and yeah. we always had trouble getting Canadian teams to begin with because they mostly played ball hockey and didn't really want to play deck hockey. So you were limited to teams from like Niagara Falls and, and Quebec because that was where the deck hockey teams were in Canada. 
Yeah. Right, because they had a working agreement for a little while when I say that. Uh, didn't, you know, you guys used to send a team to Quebec. You know, the Braves went to Quebec. Goody, wherever you remember, Gene used to bring a team to Quebec. Yeah. Yeah, we went to yeah. that, yeah. Quebec, and so I remember the Quebec that. teams, I guess, reciprocate. I don't know who ran that. Mark, I'm sure you made your way over there, too, I would guess. I don't know. Uh, well, Wah had a big deal uh, to do with yeah. Quebec. And you know what's funny? You know what You know what really hurt deck hockey in Quebec? This is a a, a, a stupid story, and it's why Wah stopped bringing his teams to Leominster as well. He had a falling out with the guys who ran the tournaments in Quebec, because they switched sponsorship from Coho to Milek for the tournaments. And once yeah, I get like six figures a year from Coho, you guys got to stick with Coho or I can't put teams in. And they chose Milek over Patrick Waugh, which I'm sorry, that's just absurd in terms of the optics of the tournament, but that definitely happened. Yeah, no, I remember that Quebec too, the were... crossover sticks, the Cohos. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Dave. Those tournaments in Quebec were tremendous, too. I mean, whether you were outside or inside in Montreal or Quebec City, uh, they had a little raw tournament circuit, and you know, playing against – I mean, we played against, and I'm sure all of you did who went up there, played against tons of guys who played for the Canadians. Like, Raw's team was filled with guys from the Canadians, including, like, Guy Carboneau. Yeah, I remember that, Steve. <laughs> I remember going. Yeah, remember the, the, the two top teams, Top Gun and uh, Tappy Verde. We went up there a bunch of times with uh, Dan Broadwick, and even Stratty brought a couple teams up there. So I remember playing those teams. They were all good. Yeah, and even their bad teams were good. Yeah. That's the Quebec tournament good. Even, like, their bottom seeds could upset anybody, which is something we used to have at Lemonster and Long Island, but that – boy, that disappeared, I'd say, in about the mid-'80s. <laughs> it became really a – a top-heavy group among the American teams after about the mid-'80s. The interesting thing is is uh, the Canadians, when they came to Lemonster, which I remember much better. I, I went to that Quebec one time, but they, uh, they'd they only bring, I guess this is how they played, which we'd learn later with ball hockey a lot anyway. They'd, play, they'd bring 10 guys to Lemonster, and they always look good, at, at, you know, Saturday and Sunday, or, you know, but they were – I mean, they were not there. I don't know that Patrick Wild was taking it all that serious. I mean, when he played, he tried, but I think he was, you know, more having a good time. But he definitely – who else? Was it Stefan LeBeau? Was he another guy? Yeah, I remember him. Two LeBeau brothers, uh, Stefan yeah. and LeBeau. Patrick? They were two of the better players I ever saw. They had J.J. Daniel, Guy Carbono, Jimmy Waite from Shakutami. Played yeah, Wapley. I remember Jimmy Waite. They had a bunch of guys that were NHL guys. Sylvain Lafayette was there yeah i see some of those guys like when wa coached uh, the avalanche they were in town and i went up and i said hey i used to see you play deck hockey he uh, had very fond memories of it in the 70s we laid the foundation of the game in the 80s we saw the rapid expansion and now it's time to tape up the knuckles in the 90s it was just uh, so much more physical even the ball hockey tournaments now which are pretty physical if you got in a, you played a tournament then you played six games in the nationals and you played seven games in the internationals, you weren't walking for two or three days after because it was just a war every time you went on the rink, whether you're playing Corm or the Montreal Flames or the, the Niagara Falls, Willow, whatever they happen to be called that particular time, Frank's Wild Mushrooms, uh, Boston Braves, it didn't matter. Uh, every team you played, it was a physical beating and to survive, it was a survival really is what it was uh, to get through six or seven games to win a tournament. Like Thunderdome. Yeah. So, so one of the things, one of the things that Kendall can speak to and Goody, uh, 
this the biggest difference that frustrates the old timers is, and Purcell knows this, and Mark sees for both sides of it. Everybody, even you, that there was none of this glad handed at the ring. <laughs> like there was a big rivalry and listen, competitive hatred for sure. Like you know, you a lot of guys were neighbors. Uh, cousins, brothers, you know, whether it was, you know, three Holmans on, you know, on, on the Rams or, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, next door neighbors. So when, you know, guys didn't speak to each other, it was a mutual respect, but during the games, there was a definite, uh, rivalry and, you know, your team, Scott, is one of those still kind of throwback teams, although the last couple of years, I haven't been around as much, but like they were still that competitive, not there to make friends, not there to have, a good time, you know. The, the the great players like Goody were were respected and and revered and 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 that type of thing. But they weren't buddy buddy with everyone. And and listen, no one was more competitive than the guy running it. Chris Hauser is one of the great competitors uh, of all time, and that was part of it. And then later on, you know, whether it's social media and then the the you know the advent of the recreational tournament at the beach brought everyone together and who you could get. But the '90s were intense rivalry dislike Mm -hmm. winner take all last man standing i'll give you a good story about that so uh, playing on the lemons of saints i'm 18 and you know 18 17 18 years old we're playing the rams for the first time ever and craig holman's on our team he's on the saints at the time and mark holman his brother's on the other team runs craig from behind head first into the boards knocks him completely out of the game and that's his own brother and we're like holy shit he just knocked down his own brother what's he gonna do to, to me when I go in the corner with them. So it's just, that's just an idea of what it was like. And they and went to work together on, they worked together on Monday. <laughs> they worked and, and, quite, and quite possibly the Holman's parents were there watching. Uh, oh, and not to be funny, were. but like, <laughs> right, they were, yeah. And, you know, back to the, Goody can tell you about the practices. The practices, are, you know, we practiced every week. Not so much the Dreamers, they had their get-togethers. But like Quorum, when oh, I was yeah. them, we practiced when we were, every week. And those those practices, many days ended in a fight amongst guys who, went to high school together and grew up together. And to his point, and, and listen, you had a decision to make when you were good enough to become, go from freshman to senior. You were making a life decision, not to be dramatic, but when you said, okay, I'm going to go with the Rams or I'm going to go with the Saints, you were alienating a group of people because it was something that was taken very seriously. Oh, yeah. I remember when Goody kissed Hauser on the rink. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Well, I don't remember that. Action. Was it Chunk? Maybe it was Chunk. <laughs> I don't think I ever kicked Hauser. Hauser slurred you with some kind of some kind of bad word, and you kissed him. That was Chunk. That was Chunk. <laughs> oh, that goody, that was you. Come on, I remember. It. All right. What goody kissed Chunk, and then Chunk kissed Hauser. I said, "Give this to Hauser." <laughs> yeah. Physical play was a hallmark of the 1990s, but the skill, passion, and commitment to win is what made this decade great. Dave Purcell walks us through his perspective in the Boston area. Yeah, my, mine, was, mine was kind of a weird thing playing. I was up in Saugus. Normally, I'd, I'd probably end up with Dan Broadwick or some of these guys with the Stars, but obviously the, playing the way I did, get suspended for there for a year and ended up in Drake it. And then next thing you know, I end up with Kevin Trombley playing for the Raiders and hooking up with those guys. And like Jay said, Back then, we used to every Saturday night we used to practice, probably from six to eight for two hours um, with the Raiders. My whole the whole time up until 2000, when we all got thrown out of there, and then 
we went to the next team, the Stars. We always practiced. I mean, that was the thing back then, and I, and I think it obviously helped a ton. Obviously, it helped, but it just kept us closer. Like, we were all a tight tight group. Like, I know Mark, like, like I, I respect Corum. I know, like, they had a lot of – they had – a lot of hard-nosed players, but they had the talent, too. And uh, the Raiders were kind of built like that. So we had good battles with them. Like, we really respected each other that way. Um, the 90s were tough. Like, if you won a tournament in the 90s, you had to go through, like, the Rams, the the, the dream is corn towards the end. The Braves were in there. We were in there. Uh, a New Jersey team. Like, there was just a lot of teams. If you look through the 90s, I mean, like Jay said, he was in a bunch of finals. I was in a bunch of finals, lost probably half of them. And it's tough to, to look back at because you would have had that many more championships, but it was tough to win back then. Long Island was a mainstay of tournaments throughout the 90s, synonymous with physical play, great teams, and numerous titles. Anthony Sillo walks us through the establishment of a hockey hotbed. You know, and I, I, you think about like, the, you know, being hated, right? So, like, going to Kendall's point, that means you're doing something good, right, so when it comes to everybody not liking you. I mean, Corm, I, I was on there as a young kid. I think the first year I played, we got suspended by, uh, you know, Hauser, uh, the for a whole year. We had a – it was this whole <laughs> production of – In your I, face. I, I think I went – yeah, I went to my first tournament with them or one of the first couple, and – uh got suspended, had to a, had a write a letter to be reinstated, and it went to whatever was considered the committee. And uh, for us to be let back in, it was, it was uh, you know, an interesting time. But you took it seriously. We all – we wrote letters. You did not write the letter because you wanted to be allowed back to play. Um, it, was, uh, it was pretty wild stuff. The, uh, the Dreamers, it, you know, the contrast is for those that maybe not – remember was night and day right you had quorum that was i mean it was as serious as uh, you know you could be right Uh, not being a part of anything like on a professional level it was as close to what you know you could experience um at the time you know for anybody that wouldn't obviously have that having a somewhat of a sponsor helped but they took it serious so you were you know it was practice every sunday you were uh, at the tournament. It was, you know, meal together. Or everything was matching. You know, there was a lot of a lot of things that you put in place that they put in place. That I think a lot of the games with Corn, besides like the Rams, let's say, or even the Dreamers, were won before they stepped on the ring. Like a lot of guys were just didn't want to be bothered to go at it with them because they were relentless. And everybody came on, and there was something to be said about full uniform, head to toe, matching to the T. I mean, even, you know, sneakers and having what, you know, anything that you needed, right? So there was, a, there was a lot of that. And then you had the Dreamers on the other side, literally would barely show up to the, all the games at the same time. Uh, one time there was a tournament I played uh, with them, or we may have been a shock at that time, didn't even have hockey balls to warm up. We were shooting, pretending to shoot on Jimmy Bennett, and he was doing this with the net, and there were no hockey balls. And we decided that we're going to do that the whole tournament now because we were winning. And I, you know, probably won that tournament. But um, it, it, was, it was tough when the teams had to 
like travel somewhat together because there were a mix of friends on each team. Baker, who was previously on Corm, um, and then having to play each other and all bets were off. Like it was a very strange dynamic when you had two teams that were so good. There was a third team that nobody really mentions, um, the Kinghawks, and they were a, a like, the, you know, I'd say more like a C team at the time, um, but they were from Long Island. They were, you know, somewhat competitive. They would go to a lot of these tournaments. And to what somebody said earlier, it was the days of three and out, right? They'd be gone on Saturday. I actually, one of the, I was really young at the time and went to a tournament with them. And, you know, you get the shit kicked out of you if you played one of the other Long Island teams, physically and literally. Um, but so having those two teams, having to play each other, a lot, it seemed, you know, because they were so good, the Corman, the Dreamers. Um, and then as it, as it faded, like I said, guys, somebody mentioned, you know, as guys drop off, have kids, all the different uh, things that happened, there were still enough players to create the shock. So that's something to be said, uh, you know, for the Long Island hockey. I mean, there was times when there was a couple of guys added here and there, but it was mostly Long Island. And so around the, and a lot of that has to do with Jay, um, keeping it alive and bringing it together. As Long Island area participation dwindled towards the end of the decade, the remaining stars formed one last powerhouse team from the area in the Long Island shock. Mark Goody and Jay Machen take us through the creation of the last great Long Island team, which would go on to win the Triple Crown and Lemister and go down as one of the greatest deck teams ever. I guess the first one was with Hal, right, Jay? Yeah, when Hal sponsored know, it? You know, Kepler and them kind of had the Dreamers, and then, but and you know, most of your guys went. You know, you Worm, Billy. You played the same, yeah, the same freshman guys mostly, and the Junior Royal and the Royals. Remember the Royals? Yeah. With Eddie, with Murray, Russo, we all combined to make that, and then we started going away, and then uh, the shock just came when everyone, like you said, there's no quorum, and then uh, Jay just took over and made a team. If something happened in '95, we we went to the. Not right. We went to the. Uh, to the Can-Am, and uh, we we actually won the Can-Am. We won again. The final was one nothing, and the late Paul Jacobson scored the goal. Remember Paul Jacobson, Mark? He always came. You were friendly with Jake. Yeah, I, yeah, I went there. Yeah. yeah. The I'm saying, uh, Madden. Madden was yeah, friendly. Yeah. Paulie Jake, rest in peace. And yeah, he, uh, he scored. That's terrible. And uh, great guy. One of the nicer guys. And uh, anyway, long, long story short, we went to, and then we we came back in 96, and we won the internationals, but it was like a ragtag thing. And guys was the old dream of guys that had enough. Like it was less of the clings and, uh, and, and the money. Yeah, the, yeah. They all parted their ways. They and, you know, guys got married. A couple of guys stole each other's wives. Right, Sam? Yeah. A couple of, the, a couple of, the, a couple of things went on. <laughs> and, and then, and then in 90, at the beginning of 97, center reach was still up. Cause that's where we held a quote unquote tryout. And we just got together and someone said, you run it, Jay, because it's easier. And and we and whoever was left came there. And I think we we had a tryout on a Sunday morning, and like twenty six guys came. And you know, it was the old thing back then. I thought, you know, they're like, oh, Jay's in charge. I'm like, this is great. They're letting me be in charge. But they wanted <laughs> me to be the guy who got rid of the guys that they didn't want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's and that's how it. And, that's how and we it had made a good team out of it, with Frankie and everyone. Yeah. The shock we, we had the purple yeah. jerseys. The 1990s saw the last true era of deck hockey being played in the United States. Our contributors walk us through the transition and the differences between the games. 
Well, like we, like we always discuss, it's a tough thing because when you're playing ball hockey, the game's right. a little physical, but it's not like deck hockey. Deck hockey, you're shrunk down. Everybody's tighter. Right. You're going to the net. Like, it's everybody. there's still the same skill. I mean, you, you're going to find all different guys and like today that had that skill back then. But it was just a tougher game. But will, will, would the skill from then translate to ball hockey now? Maybe that's an unfair thing to ask. The point being that I don't know if we can really compare the talent level because you don't know how each would translate to the other. You know, uh, how Mark, how would the Dreamers have been as a ball hockey team? Dreamers would have been a good ball hockey team. How would it, the Saints have been? Uh, it depends which era Saints, but the Saints, when they were all very young and would have jumped in and made the transition, they would have been a very good ball hockey team as well. Plus, it, it's a mean, tough I, comparison because people – you know, I mean, you're going to – as we brought up this before, like, you might design your team a little bit differently too. You know yeah, I mean? 100%. You're, you're, you're going to – But, Scotty, okay. you're a perfect example of a guy who's on a team, runs a team, who's a kind of a middle team at times. You will admit one thing. You go out there and, 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 and listen, you, you see some guys. Some of these young kids, yeah, they're okay, even good. But because they can run, they're already well ahead of the curve. Yeah, because that, they can run like a gazelle. Yeah, that's what I don't like. That's what I don't like with the ball hockey thing. Like, you can't tell me that someone's a better skilled player because they play ball hockey because they can run faster. Like, that, that doesn't make you a better player. If you're in a, in a tighter uh, tighter area and you have to think quicker, that, to me, makes a better hockey player. I could well, go – I could bring a team to a ball hockey tournament and have a bunch of guys drop out and find a bunch of fast guys and find yeah. a way to be competitive. You get over the yep. blue line, you dump it all the way down, you run your balls off. Where in deck hockey, I feel like if you're not skilled, you're going to, depending upon the quality of the tournament, but if you're playing in a top echelon tournament, if you don't have guys who can score inside the slot and you don't have, you know, guys who can control the ball around the, the middle line because you can't, you, in ball hockey, I can just run behind a defenseman and stretch the zone or, or dump it in. Where in, in deck hockey, you've got to make a move usually on that defenseman um, or stop and control the ball around there. So it's definitely two completely completely yeah. different games. But I, I would say you need, um, you need more skilled players in deck hockey um, because the, I think the scoring becomes more at a premium. Now, you know, games always get tight in the finals, but in ball hockey, I can say from, from experience, I could construct it from a, from a GM perspective, I could construct a team a little bit easier if guys bailed on me like they always do in our sport a week or two before um, because I can always find runners. I can't always find goal scorers for deck hockey in the last week or two. They don't yeah. grow, on, grow, on, grow on trees as much as fast people do. One of the most memorable tournaments of the 90s took place in Niagara Falls. However, it wasn't memorable for its quality of play, but instead for the violence that came with this yearly event. Jay, this isn't, this isn't a good story, but I'll tell it anyway. I gave Todd's lip one time at Niagara Falls. He gouged my eye. The Niagara tournaments what made the Lemister tournaments like calm. Yeah. Refs called nothing. It was just a, that was real war up there because no, nothing was ever called. You could do whatever you wanted. Well, listen, they used to wear T-shirts. We'll get you in Niagara. I mean, it was, it was, that, was, that was downright, looking back, Steve, it was dangerous. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was where it was the most dangerous. The Niagara tournament was the most dangerous one, no question. We had to get escorted to the border. Remember what Tony's St. Pat's, the church? 
We were yeah. on the bus. They had to escort this to the border <laughs> to get out of there. And Mark, that was a pretty easy trip for you. You went there more than one occasion, didn't you? Many yeah, occasions. We went there a lot, but that's to my regret. Like because the problem was, <laughs> Hauser grew up with all those guys and had never suspended them. He'd never put them in their place. He'd never get rid of them because he knew them. And not only that, they were only playing that one anyway. And listen, the famous line was, they would tell you, I don't care about this tournament. I'll break my sick over your head. Like, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't. Hey, hey, Steve, you were there when uh, me and Stratty went up there, right? And we played with Bobby yep. and Cody. Yep. It was 16 Bobby didn't want to go out there. <laughs> they were 16 years old, and we were playing Niagara in the finals. And I was like, we can't battle these guys. They'll kill us. Like, we had Bobby 16, Cody 16. Like, Matt Levesque. <laughs> and it was listen, a war. Never, the stick swing listen, when, war. <laughs> yeah. When we went to Lemonster, we loved it. And it was some of the big, you know, listen, 90s Lemonster was the greatest place to be. And those three trips a year were great. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you were worried that, you know, if you did something wrong, Chris would get you. Hell, you were worried if you won the game, Chris might get you. But you, <laughs> went, to, you went to Niagara. They didn't care. They couldn't, like, you couldn't tell them, oh, you're going to win a jacket. They didn't care. Like, you know, so so whatever happened, I mean, listen, talk about leaving it all on the rink. I mean, there were many, many a stick fights there. Oh, yeah. Yes, there I was were. reffing there, and I got punched refereeing a men's game. I was like 15. Dave Guitar has me out there refereeing a game. Perhaps we should have punch her in the face. The better on the game. The 1990s saw the introduction of the game on the world stage. The world championships, I mean, the, the highest point they were at, uh, we would call it international tournament. That's what Leclerc was running. So that tournament was specific for Canadian teams, a percentage, U.S. teams. That was 20 teams only. And we used to get lots of people wanting to get in it. Uh, and he would turn away teams. He only took 20. It was a round-robin tournament. So that, that, that ran for a long time. In around the years it was starting to tail off, uh, you had a parallel set of tournaments by Ken White going in Canada, which we would take our teams up to. And so you had the Deck Hockey, Street Hockey International Tournaments. Then you had the Canada Cup. He was running the Canada Cup. And um, I might have told you, you know, we had a, we were doing a lot of exchanges, Ken and I, to try to show that street hockey players could play ball hockey and ball hockey could play street hockey. It really wasn't a big chasm, but, you know, some people thought it was. We would win there and vice versa. So, but you still had the contact factor. But I, I think we all played under that that cloud of, of contact and we got through it. You know, I mean, good athletes know, know how to do that. In around uh, 98, uh, the Czech programs were starting to develop, and uh, uh, they sent a contingent of three or four people over to uh, Levenster and early, and they met with me, and they said, look, we want to develop some world tournaments. And uh, we'll send over a couple teams, from one from Czech, one from Slovakia, and enter the U.S. Nationals. I said, great. So they sent over a couple teams, uh, the Japanese have been over the year before trying to look at a program to start their street hockey up. And, and, uh, so they came over and a year later we sent our team, uh, it was mostly guys from our rink, a few guys from Niagara Falls. And we went to the uh, Czech Republic to play in what was their first world championship. 
but they were off by a lot of things. You know, uh, they weren't as organized as sort of a guy like Ken White uh, or us for sure. And uh, they were just getting their their uh, feet wet. So they were using a bad ball. The rules weren't consistent yet. And uh, but that was the first one, and uh, we had a great time. You know, we'd been, and you know, we, there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, 96, 97, 98, USA Hockey was, I was working with them. They were going to develop a, an entire program dedicated to street. And uh, as it turned out, uh, roller hockey started getting bigger, and the attention shifted to roller hockey. And why did that happen? Strictly a money issue. You know, you could sell, the manufacturers drive the game, and uh, you could sell, 10 sticks to, and one skate would equal 10 sticks being sold. So uh, they knew there was a lot of money in it, and they, they spent all their money, all their interest went, went right into roller hockey. So our hockey took a little bit of a dip. In USA Hockey, they turned away. And I don't know if that was a good or a bad thing, but they had a lot of people very dedicated to the idea of having a separate world for street hockey. Uh, so the first, those were the first years of the World Championships, just strictly uh, men's teams uh, playing against different countries. And the countries were only those countries, like you've played in the World Championships. Uh, Germany was Germany. It wasn't like half of uh, Toronto. Uh, Italy was Italy. It wasn't half of, uh, you know, Vancouver. So the first few tournaments were strictly really good ethnic tournaments and then obviously it's it's gone a long way since then behind the violence and physical play of the 1990s was a generation of players coaches and contributors that would put the game above all else to them deck hockey wasn't just a sport it was a way of life a great story in the sense of what we all felt nothing listen men on this podcast i, I screwed up many things for this i missed weddings I miss funerals. <laughs> I miss graduations. Listen, we went to Goody's wedding on a Friday. We, we were trying to figure out how to get him to go. We left on Saturday morning. I went to my prom, uh, and I didn't go to Great Adventure. I, I, I sent a girl I was dating to another prom alone. The girl I, I was with forever, which I everybody knows. Dean and Selma's wedding to go to the yeah. uh, family fun spot. <laughs> Listen, there was a time where I, I – I, this is a very gratifying for me because there was a time where this was much – much too important. Purcell missed, Purcell's a good-looking cat. I'm sure many blew off many before he was a married man. Many, many de- ladies got blown off. Yeah. You know, Kendall, Kendall was a married man. <laughs> I'm sure he's got a story or two that that cocky interfered. The, you fact, know, the funny thing was too, like you say, Jay. I you, you knew every single tournament. First week of May, yeah. first week of February, yep, yep. first week of November. And when guys say oh, I booked a vacation, I'd be yep. like, "You idiot!" Like you, you got mad at him. You were ready to play. <laughs> <Yeah. him. laughs> You're booking around it. That's why you get the dates. You're booking around that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to lie and cheat. And this guy's this guy. There was always a, a genius who was not even a hockey player. Like I know guys. I'm getting married the first weekend of May. Like a guy who wasn't into deck hockey, and you'd be like, "You're doing it without me, guy." <laughs> you might want to change that if you want me there. I mean, <laughs> Luke, Luke, Luke Jones and me say this all the time. You know, when when you're about ready to have kids, you you got to plan your kids. Uh, you know, around the uh, the tourney season. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm telling you, but tell the truth, Scotty. You, you're a pretty even-tempered guy, and 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 you think it out. Everything it seems. 
didn't it make you mad when a guy told you, oh, we're, getting, we're having an engagement party the first week of May or, or North American weekend, whatever it may be? Mark will tell you, you don't plan anything at the end of April. You're going out to play in that, uh, that Neville Island. Come on. Yeah, me, me, and, <laughs> me, and, me and Dave just talked about that. When you're a general manager or a coach, you've heard every excuse every excuse in the book. The, uh, those, those work conferences and weddings that just pop up the day before, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm telling you, my cousin's getting married. I'm like, you didn't know till now. The same thing as a tournament organizer. I'll sometimes get the stuff, well, I didn't know the tournament was the end of April. Right. right. been that weekend for 24 years. <laughs> listen, listen. How many Mother's Days did we spend in yeah. Lemonster? Goody, Goody was getting killed after his wife had kids. He's like, oh, maybe I'll come outside of you. He, he, first Mother's you. Day. I missed the first Mother's Day. I was in Lemonster. First Mother's yeah. Day. I never heard. Still never get the end of it. I missed my college graduation <laughs> playing the international, so. <laughs> I still never hear it on First Mother's Day till this day. I still don't hear the end of it. But I will tell you, when you go to Lemonson to this day, you don't see as many of the guys. But even Teddy, who didn't like anyone, and the Holmans, when you see him, and, and Ray Richard was one of the gems of a guy that ever walked the earth. I mean, he's the nicest guy you ever met. There's a, there's a mutual respect that I think is even different from today's player because the familiarity was not there when we were young but the opportunity to share the 90s generation. And if we can yeah. say one thing on, on the podcast, and this is this has nothing to do with the 90s, the 2000s, the 70s or 80s, nothing, nothing bonds men more than winning. Every one of those guys remembers. Those kids remember. My guys remember. We sit and we talk, and we are close to this day. And Parcells said that famous line after the Giants won the – Super Bowl. You walk, uh, Keenan said the, the whole walk together for the rest of your life, and Parcells said for the rest of your life, no one can ever say that you couldn't do it. And that may not mean a lot to the people who don't know what that cocky is, but to be in Lemonster on Sunday and win that tournament, very few things will ever, you know, we can play the politically correct game, the birth of your children, the love of your wife, and all that stuff, and all that's great, but I know grown men who won't admit it. That was as big a moment in their life. Am I wrong, Purcell? as anything uh, they've ever done. Definitely oh, one of yeah. the best times. Yeah, and I mean, that's why, you know, we, we wanted to do this. I mean, for, for everyone who's on this, everyone who is, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, when we go into the 2020s, you know, the, the guys from Deck Hockey Focus out in Iowa, like, we're here because we love this sport. And it's, it's, I think it's difficult for people who don't show up to uh, nationals or North Americans or now a club championships or a clash of the Titans and see the competitiveness or go out there and play and feel what it's like to, to win a, a last second game. And it's stuff that, you know, we did in our, our street when we were five or six years old. And we're, you know, for a few of us, we're lucky to do it in our 20s, 30s. And for some of us into our 40s, it, it brings us all together. And that wraps part three of our five-part series, the 1990s blood sport. Scott, what does the new millennium bring? The 2000s bring the sport of ball hockey, which is the, the modern game that we see today. Jamie Cook, cool hockey events are, are very big influencers on that. And, and the viewers will obviously see that and hear from them. And then also they'll see uh, the players who were a generation that now in the 2000s played deck hockey and ball hockey together.